Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Live Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Monday evening, where we continue our reflections into the great Christian thinkers. And if you are tuning in uh, by way of podcast in the countries of Brazil, Argentina, Chile, uh, Canada, Mexico, uh, France, Portugal, Spain, uh, Italy, Germany, uh, South Africa, India, uh, China, Japan, I continue to welcome all of you. I continue to see that you are listening on the grid, so um, I welcome all of you into the uh, friendly confines here uh, in Chico, California, Northern California. Now, while I typically have John O'Hara with me each and every Monday evening, he is not with me this evening. He was unable to join me, so I will be flying solo. If you have any questions, comments, uh, thoughts, observations, please do not hesitate to email me at jholl jmj at yahoo.com, or you can just go to my website at joeholcraft.org. Again, that's J-O-E-H-O-L-L-C-R-F-T dot org. Okay, that being said, we are in that time period at or around the end of the 17th century and early 18th century. Now, last week, we hit the pause button to, to highlight the rise of some of the religious orders, you know, the, the Trappists and the Redemptorists, among others. And in our discussion on the Redemptorists, we focused in on their founder, St. Alphonsus Liguori, another doctor of the Church. Towards the tail end of last week's program, uh, we were talking about St. Alphonsus Liguori's great work, The Glories of Mary. And it is here where I want to transition into our figure for this evening, another Frenchman, during the time period of Liguori, and another man who had great devotion to Mary. And this, of course, is St. Louis-Marie de Montfort. In point of fact, <laughs> you would be hard-pressed to find anyone, anyone in the history of the Church who has done more to better understand Mary than that of St. Louis uh, de Montfort. Now, uh, the likes of St. Bernard of Clairvaux and, and our figure from last week, St. Alphonsus Liguori, certainly come to mind. But if you were to amass the volume of words towards um, Mary, it would have to be St. Louis de Montfort. And uh, so you can imagine this evening will be about a deepening of our understanding of Mary. Okay, very important. And in many ways, we will see that our time together this evening is really going to complement our weekly Marian minutes, huh? That we have been about those soundbite reflections uh, into Mary in Scripture. Okay, so with that, what about Saint Louis de Montfort? Uh, just a few biographical pieces here. He was born in, as you can well imagine, Montfort, right? The eldest of eighteen children. Did you hear that? Eighteen children. When I was reading on de Montfort, I was made to remember my own childhood. I'm I'm one of eleven kids. And uh, we were close friends with two other families who had 13 kids and 15 kids. So when these families came together, there are 39 kids running around. <laughs> In fact, my godparents uh, had 15 kids, 15 kids. So anyhow, uh, 11, 13, 15 still don't match <laughs> De Montfort's 18. And he was the oldest 
of that many kids, that is going to give shape and form to, to who you are for sure. All right, so at the age of 12, he entered the Jesuit College of St. Thomas Becket and René, René, France, where his uncle was a parish priest. You know, over the course of these past weeks and months, we have seen often that um, these great saints, these great doctors of the church that we have been talking about, not that de Montfort's a doctor of church, but certainly a, a great saint, that these great figures we have been discussing um, have relatives who, if they're not a pope <laughs> or a cardinal or bishop, a priest. So his uncle was a parish priest at this Jesuit college. And at the end of his ordinary schooling, um, at this school, he'd begin to study uh, philosophy and theology, and it was there where he was inspired to preach missions among the very poor. And under the guidance of some other priests, he also began to develop his strong devotion to the Blessed Virgin Mary. He was then given the opportunity after his schooling there uh, through a benefactor to go to study at a renowned seminary in Paris. And it was at this seminary that he came in contact with the writings of one Jean-Jacques Olier, one of the leading exponents of what came to be known as the French School of Spirituality. Um, he would study these writings closely. And so out from that, we would begin to see his, his devotion to the angels and most especially Mary. Uh, these writings would later lead to his focus, in fact, um, on the Holy Rosary and his acclaimed book, certainly The Secrets of the Rosary. Now, he was ordained a priest in uh, June of 1700, so he was ordained a priest at the age of 27, and he was assigned to Nantes, France. And it was his great desire to go to the four missions. Have we seen this before? <laughs> this desire to really preach the good news to every ends of the earth. Now, his spiritual director advised him against it. And we would later find out through his letters that this period would prove to be a great frustration for him because he so desired to preach. And, and so he would actually set off to make a pilgrimage to Rome and to ask Pope Clement XI what he should do. And the Pope recognized his real vocation and telling him that there was plenty of uh, scope for its exercise in France, that vocation to preach and serve the poor, he sent him back to France with the title of Apostolic Missionary. And as his reputation as a missionary would grow, he became known as the Good Father from Montfort. Uh, so St. Louis de Montfort, the Good Father from Montfort. Now he was constantly occupied in, in preaching missions and always traveling on foot between one and, and, and another, yet he, he would find time to write his classics. And what were those classics? Well, certainly True Devotion to Mary, which we're going to talk about here in a bit. True Devotion to Mary, The Secrets of Mary, and The Secret of the Rosary. Um, for some of you out there who might be familiar with St. Louis de Montfort, there's also the work God Alone. God Alone is a compilation of all of his writings. So you can Begin to imagine here, huh? if you're not familiar with de Montfort, just with those three titles, True Devotion to Mary, The Secret of Mary, and The Secrets of the Rosary, um, he spent a lot of time reflecting into the Blessed Virgin Mary. And so he would go on preaching, and, and this preaching would have such an impact that the numbers would grow in these parishes, and he would start to uh, establish free schools for young boys and, and girls, and, and over time he, was, he would establish a new religious order of women. Uh, in point of fact, on August 22nd, 1715, de Montfort would oversee the profession of over 400
100 women to what would become known as the Daughters of Wisdom, the religious community, the Daughters of Wisdom. And they were serving these educational centers, these schools for these young, poor boys and girls. So you can begin to really see, appreciate at this point, the kind of impact that this man had. So St. Louis de Montfort, after 16 years a priest and serving many of those months as a preacher and, and as a writer, would fall ill and die on April 28th, uh, 1716. He died at the age of 43. He died at the age of 43, and it's always remarkable to me to think about that, how these great saints, how these great thinkers accomplish so much at such a young age. Striking. Okay, now, as it relates to arguably his greatest work, True Devotion to Mary, that uh, many of us might be familiar with, and, and if you're not, um, please pay close attention, because I know, too, that there are a lot of questions about Mary, especially why uh, the Catholics practice devotion to Mary. And so what we want to do for the remainder of this program is really focus in on what true devotion to Mary is all about and hopefully answer some of your questions. Okay, so uh, what is devotion to Mary? To answer this question, we must first make a basic theological distinction. Adoration, which is known as in the Latin, latria, okay, in classic theology, is the worship and homage that is rightfully offered to God alone. It is the acknowledgement of excellence and perfection of an uncreated divine person. Simply put, it is the worship of the Creator that God alone deserves. Veneration, on the other hand, known in the Latin as dulia in classical theology, is the honor due to the excellence of a created person. So this refers to the excellence exhibited by the created being who likewise deserves recognition and honor. You know, we see a general example of veneration events like the awarding of academic awards for excellence in school, or maybe the awarding of the Olympic medals for excellence in sports. There is nothing contrary to the proper adoration of God when we offer the appropriate honor and, and recognition that created persons deserve based on achievement and excellence. And so what we want to do is really draw out this distinction, okay? Now, under the category of veneration, we see the honor and reverence that the saints then rightly receive, right? Why? Because the saints, my dear friends, manifested a true excellence in the pursuit and the attainment of Christian holiness, right? And in the light of this excellence, our Lord grants the saints in heaven an ability to intercede for those on earth who are in the process of pursuing holiness. We're going to talk more about that intercession in a bit. This is a basic principle of the mystical body of Christ and the communion of saints. Now, St. Thomas Aquinas points out a further truth regarding uh, veneration of saints. He says that the devotion a person has to God's saints does not end with the saints themselves, but rather reaches ultimately to God through the saints. I know this is a common misunderstanding out there, that we turn to the saint as if the saint is equal to God. No, saints as mediators is an important element in properly understanding authentic Catholic devotion uh, to the saint. So, to give honor to the saint who has excelled in loving union with God is also then to what? honor the object of his loving union, God himself, right? For example, 
if you offered a special hospitality to the children of your longtime friends, then ultimately you are doing what? But offering a sign of love to your longtime friends themselves. This is very much analogous to the veneration of saints. When we honor those who spent their life pursuing intimate union with God, we are also ultimately honoring God who is the object of their love. In short, my friends, we can rightfully say it is pleasing to God and ultimately it gives Him glory when we honor those who excelled in love of Him. This is true about honoring the mother of Jesus because of her special role in union with the Lord. So within the general category, then a veneration, we can speak of a unique level of veneration, an exalted level of honor that would be appropriate for honoring a created person whose excellence rises above that of every other created person. And it is in this special level of veneration, classically called not dulia, but hyperdulia, that we find the proper devotion ascribed to the Blessed Virgin Mary. So this special veneration of Mary remains completely different and inferior to adoration that is due to God alone. Devotion to Mary is never to rival in nature or in degree uh, the adoration proper only to God. I, I emphasize this because I, I do know in my many conversations with you listeners out there that there's a lot of confusion about that, but we have to be clear that devotion to Mary is never to rival in nature or in degree the adoration that is proper only due to God. That being said, while veneration of the Blessed Virgin Mary will always be inferior to the adoration given uniquely to God, it will always be superior and higher than devotion given to all other saints and angels. Now, why, <laughs> you ask, does uh, the Blessed Virgin Mary deserve a unique and a higher level of devotion than all of the other saints and angels? There are at least three fundamental reasons an exalted devotion is appropriate. First of all, Mary was granted by God a fullness of grace. Luke 128, huh? fullness of grace. From the greeting of the angel Gabriel and the words, Hail, full of grace, the Lord is with you. We get an indication of God's special gift to Mary at the moment of conception. You see, my friends, Mary received God's gift of being free from original sin from the first instant of her conception preparing her to be the fitting mother of the Word made flesh. This unique gift allowed a plentitude of grace for the Virgin, since the fullness of grace was not limited by a fallen nature. Some of you may be asking, how do you get that? Well, what is in that Greek, kekartomene? That is a perfect participle, which speaks to an action completed in the past. In that angelic salutation, my dear friends, what you have is a phrase, a Greek stock phrase that translates you who have been fully graced at some point in the past. So certainly, this can begin to speak to uh, her immaculate conception, being conceived without uh, the stain of original sin from the moment of conception. Why? Well, God rolls up his divine sleeves and creates his masterpiece, his new tabernacle, if you will, so that when he enters into the womb of Mary, um, that womb would be free from stain, free from the stain of sin. All the other saints have shared excellence and grace, but they did not have the fullness of grace due to the limitations of their fallen nature, huh? 
Even St. John the Baptist, who was sanctified in the womb, as tradition tells us, started with a fallen nature. Because St. John was not conceived with a nature like the Blessed Virgin's nature, huh? A nature that was free from all stain of sin. Only a nature free from all stain of sin allows for a full plenitude of grace. So Mary's fullness of grace rightfully calls for special recognition and devotion. This is what one can clearly draw from Luke 1.28. Secondly, and most significantly, Mary alone had the privilege of being the mother of God, huh? of being mother of God, the Son, Jesus Christ. There's a technical theological term there, theotokos, which in the Greek simply translates as the God-bearer, giving flesh to the Word made flesh. And this certainly grants Mary an excellence and a dignity beyond any other creature. She is the mother of God. I mean, we can imagine the intimate union and the spiritual effects of having God physically present in us for nine months and of giving Jesus his human nature. So because Mary, as true mother, gave to Jesus what our mothers gave to us, a nature like her own, she is rightly the mother of God. My dear friends, only Mary, of all creatures, had an interior and crucial role in Jesus' taking on human nature to become our Redeemer. I mean, think about this critically. She just wasn't someone passing by who God said, well, you know, I'll just pick her. No, there was a plan, as St. Paul reminds us, from the beginning of time, from the foundation of the world, just as Eve was the instrumental cause of the loss of grace in her no, so is the new Eve, Mary, an instrumental cause in the restoration of grace in her yes, her yes to the angel Gabriel. So this should not be underestimated. To underestimate the role of Mary in God becoming man is also to underestimate the significance of God becoming man, the greatest event known in human history. You must remember, my friends, Mary could have said no. That's a foundational principle because God is never going to take away anyone's free will, just as he didn't with Eve. Well, Mary could have said no, but she said yes. And to her yes, we recognize the greatness, the greatness of who she is and in her vocation. In short, we could say, the Blessed Virgin Mary gave the, the carne <laughs> to the incarnation. She gave flesh to the Word made flesh, who, as John 1.14 reminds us, dwelt among us. I mean, think about this. We have to ponder the greatness of what we are talking about here. All right, how about the third reason? Well, the third reason for an exalted devotion to the Mother of God is, well, what we just talked about. Mary's perfect obedience to the will of God throughout her life on earth. Mary's fiat, her yes to the will of God, was great, but also this was seen throughout her whole earthly life. By cooperating with her God-given enmity against Satan, her complete opposition to the serpent and to his seed of sin, Mary never said no to manifest the will of God during her earthly life. But that's, a, of course, a reflection of uh, Genesis 3.15, where it speaks to uh, the seed of Satan against the seed of Mary, huh? the seed of the woman. Of course, Satan's seed is sin, and the, and the woman's seed is Christ. So Mary 
working in complete opposition to Satan and sin is fulfilling and cooperating in God's uh, grace and vocation. Now, how about some common misconceptions of the Catholic Church and, and devotion to Mary? I recently received a question as it relates to the worshiping of Marian statues and, and in regards to the worshiping of Marian statues and images. Again, we must distinguish something here. First of all, within the authentic Catholic Church, there is no adoration given to Marian images, right? This is what we just spoke to as it relates to uh, Latria and Dulia. Latria, adoration to God, Dulia, veneration to those who excel, and hyperdulia, that place of honor given to Mary. So there is no worshiping of Marian statues. I mean, a painting or statue of Mary serves the same purpose, say, as a family photo on an office desk or, or a statue of a public hero or statesman erected in a town square. What do I mean? Well, that image serves as a reminder of the person the image represents and thereby possesses a symbolic or representational value, not a true personal value in of itself, per se. As the father gazes upon the photograph of his family on his desk at work and feels the warming of his heart at the thought of his wife and children, so too, we can properly say, an image of Jesus' mother can evoke similar feelings of filial love and devotion to her. But, but, as is true of the family photo and the public memorial statue, the Marian statue or image possesses no intrinsic power or, or personhood, huh? It only conveys an image of a heavenly spiritual mother most deserving of our earthly devotion and love in light of the three reasons we talked about, huh? Now, some of you may be more generally objecting to intercession. Where do we see that in sacred scripture? Well, what do you find in sacred scripture? We must remember that in the Old Testament, the Jewish people manifested faith in the intercession of the saints, as attested by Judas the Maccabean. If you were to go to 2 Maccabees chapter 15, verses 11 to 16, you see this turn towards heaven and entrustment and heavenly intercession. And we also see the Jewish people manifest faith in the ability of the angels and saints to offer prayers at the feet of God and support them with their intercession. We see this in the book of Tobit, chapter 12, verse 12, and certainly in the book of Revelation, chapter 5, verse 8, chapter 8, verse 3. St. Paul asked for prayerful intercession from many other disciples. If you're to go to Romans, chapter 15, verse 30, Colossians, chapter 4, verse 3, 1 Thessalonians, chapter 5, verse 25, this is what we read, huh, of him asking for prayerful intercession and also referred to his own prayers for them as prayers of intercession, right? If you were to go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 11, we read of that. And so, since heaven <laughs> is a state of God's living saints, as Mark 12, verses 26 to 27 would remind us, St. Paul can certainly continue his prayers for his fellow members of the body of Christ. We must remember something here. And again, this comes to us directly from sacred scripture. We are co-workers, 1 Corinthians 3, 5. We are co-workers in the building up of the kingdom of God. Only a misconception about heaven as a stagnant, isolated, removed part of the body of Christ 
an assembly without concern or, or love for the rest of the body, still seeking the crown of heavenly glory, would lead to the conclusion that the saints do not continue their prayer and intercession for their beloved family on earth. What do we read at the end of the letter to the Hebrews? The saints cheering us on, cheering us on, a powerful, powerful image. And so it is right to reflect into the person of Mary as one who has the highest honor of being the mother of God and rightfully one who shares in this process of mediation. No, there's that passage from 1 Timothy. There's only one mediator between man and God, and that's the person of Jesus Christ. But remember, what we have talked about on more than one occasion, Paul is writing to Timothy to talk about his priesthood. (laughs) That his priesthood is a sharing in the one priesthood of Christ. That's what that whole letter is about. Yes, it's a pastoral epistle, but it's very specific to Timothy's duty, right? And that is a duty that is just not a a conforming, but also a sharing in the one priesthood of Christ, a priesthood that he established when he was here on earth. And so we in our baptism, at least in its lay vocation, share in this priesthood. And when you hear the word priesthood, what do you think about? Offering, offering. The word priesthood was synonymous with offering, especially in the Old Testament, but also in the New. So as Romans 12 verses 1 to 3 would remind us, Our whole lives are to be a what? Spiritual worship, a holy and acceptable offering to God. And in this way, what do we fulfill? Our priestly vocation. I'm just not talking about Catholics. If you're a baptized Christian, you have this priestly vocation. You have this vocation to fulfill Paul's exhortation from Romans chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. So all very important as we reflect into a better understanding of Mary and why one ought to consider a devotion to Mary, to be something that is appropriate in the context to which we speak to it today. Okay, if you have any questions, any questions about what I talked about this evening, please do not hesitate to email me at j-h-o-l-l-j-m-j at yahoo.com. If you are very unsettled about the teachings of Mary, continue to listen to Seeds of Truth radio programming, my Marian Minute sound bites. Um, they're there to, to help you better understand Mary all of these sound bites are rooted in sacred scripture. I know that there are always going to be questions, but if I can't answer your questions, I can certainly direct you to a resource that, that can help you. Okay, with that, let us close with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death, amen, and God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.